This is Valley Views, our weekly conversation with influential and interesting folks from around the Wet Mountain Valley. Today we're pleased to welcome to Valley Views Ron Thomason, president of the High Mountain Hay Fever Board, the group responsible for putting on the July Bluegrass Festival. Originally set up as a fundraiser for local charities, especially children's health, the festival has raised approaching $500,000. Ron also heads Dry Branch Fire Squad, a group performing since 1976. Today I want to talk about the history of bluegrass music from his personal perspective. Ron, welcome to Valley Views. Thanks. Thanks, Gary, and thanks for playing our music. Uh, I hope it hadn't done anybody any permanent damage. I don't think so. Uh, As you know, I host the uh, Bluegrass Express on Wednesday mornings, playing bluegrass and country music. Your music finds its way into the rotation. You know, uh, bluegrass is one of the only major musical genres that you can trace to the origin so precisely. From this neophyte's point of view, it grew out of the string brand music of the 20s or 30s, I think of Gid Tanner and the Skillet Lickers, Uncle Dave Macon. And then bluegrass is said to have started in 46 to 48 with Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys. When I think of perhaps the prototypical band, I think of uh, Lester Flat, Earl Scruggs, Chubby Wise, uh, Cedric Rainwater, and Bill Monroe himself. How do you see that that origin of bluegrass from your perspective? Thanks for asking that. I've had a lot of chance in my life to think about that because people, for some reason, ask me about it. And I actually think that bluegrass music is unique in the aspect that it jumped into the world fully formed. People look at it as if it came out of uh, old-time string band music and certainly some of the same instruments were employed in bluegrass music, but I kind of look at it more as the precursor to rock and roll music. It wasn't long after Bill Monroe, as he said, invented bluegrass music that uh, rock and roll also sort of jumped into the world fully formed with uh, some unique aspects to it. But there's no question that Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys played the first bluegrass music But Bill didn't play bluegrass music himself when he first started his band. He started his band about 1938, went on to Grand Ole Opry in 1939, and kind of experimented with different musical forms. He had a lot of blues in his music. He claimed he learned a lot of blues from a black man by the name of Arnold Schultz. And he played a lot of those notes in major keys, which was a different thing at the time. A lot of the blues were played in minor keys at the time. And then he kept, uh, different people would come into the band and go out of the band. He would play music that kind of complemented their skills. But then the atom was split when, uh, like you say, he got Flat and Scruggs and Chubby Wise in there all at the same time. And I have this fantasy that there came a time at the Grand Ole Opry when Bill came in one night and talked to that young gap-toothed boy, Earl Scruggs, and said, Well, I believe I have a song here that you will be able to play there on the banjo if you would just practice up on it. And it's called the Bluegrass Breakdown. (laughs) And if Bill Monroe had never done anything in this world but write Bluegrass Breakdown, he would be the father of bluegrass music. (laughs) So what is your earliest memory of bluegrass or old-time string band music? Honecker, Virginia was the nearest town to where I was raised, and uh, 
Carter, A.P. Carter, would come to the roller rink occasionally, and he would always go into what would you probably consider the stage door. It had a little stage in it, and there were performers. But all us kids knew he was a real important man, and uh, of course my father told me who that was because he's always wearing a suit, which was one of the things that uh, identified some of the first bluegrass performers because they all wore suits. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily suits alike, but they basically tried to dress as well as they could. Uh, the Stanley brothers, I remember uh, Reed, somebody was recounting seeing Ralph and Carter in the airport down in Florida. and They didn't know who they were, but they knew they were important people because they dressed right at the time. And if you remember, that was one of the things that really set aside people like Elvis Presley and Gene Vincent and Buddy Holly and Jerry Lee Lewis. They always dressed in the nicest clothes they had long before they were stars. Uh, you know, one of the, the those pre-bluegrass musicians uh, for whom you have a fondness is Georgia m- musician Fiddlin' John Carson. Uh, tell us a little bit about why he's a strong influence on you. Well, it's the same reason, I think, and great question, by the way. Thanks, Gary, for asking that. Because I liken this to the fact you would never hear bluegrass music today if it hadn't been for people like the Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and people that brought some of those songs that were bluegrass songs into the folk music genre and and sort of made them popular. And what happened is people were always looking, well, where'd that come from? What are the roots of that? I mean, uh, Bob Dylan's first album had Man of Constant Sorrow on it, for Mm -hmm. instance. Well, John Carson was the first commercial Southern musician that got recorded. So he, he was recording about the same time that you had some of the very earliest radio shows. His first recordings were on uh, wire recordings. You can actually hear one of them at the Henry Ford Museum. They have a thing set up that plays a wire recording. But uh, he, he didn't start playing until he was about 65. He traveled all over the southeastern United States, and he played and recorded from, I believe, 1916 to 1934. So he was probably past his prime when he started recording. But I go back to John Carson because so many of the things he played were the source for almost, like when you talk about Gid Tanner and Clayton McMitch, they all got their music from uh, John Carson. They got those bow licks, but they mostly got the singing because you hear John Carson sing a song like The Honest Farmer, it just opens up the pores on your neck and the night wind blows in, you feel like you all be driving fast cars and running with beautiful women. <laughs> Say, when you were starting out, were there other players or people who gave you a break you know, that you think about and go, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, that was very cool of that person to do such and such? Thank you for that, because I never get to tell this. And yes, there, there's two people that gave, I mean, a bunch, really. I'd, I'd say dozens, but uh, the, the key element, there's a, there was a fellow, the only reason I ever came to live back in Springfield, Ohio, after college, was there was a wonderful musician there by the name of Howard Aldridge. And he was like that musician's musician. Everybody that was a good bluegrass musician knew about him, but nobody that wasn't knew about him. And he played the banjo mostly and sang tenor, 
but he played the guitar like nobody's business. He played the mandolin, and, and other great musicians like Frank Wakefield and Jack Casey, who was on a television show at the time called Ozark Groove Jubilee, came around and played music with him, and I went back there because I, I wanted to move up to that. I could play, and I could play in college bands and stuff, and kind of whatever anybody wanted, but I wanted to play at the highest level, and he helped me get there. So he got me started, and he used to call me Docky because I'd been to college. And But then he introduced me to Bill Monroe. I had met Bill when I was five or six, but he introduced me as a musician to Bill and also to Ralph Stanley on the same day, actually. And both those men gave me big breaks. Uh, Monroe made me feel like I could play the mandolin, and, and he played. we played mandolins together a lot. And uh, Ralph... Gave me a job, Ralph Stanley put me in the Clinch Mountain Boys, and it's kind of off and running there. <laughs> Over at your house, as I recall, there's a photograph of uh, Ralph Stanley and a, and a very young Ron Thomason back there playing <laughs> really playing, young <laughs> playing mandolin, which is which is awesome because you think of Bill Monroe, but you also you also think of Ralph and Carter Stanley as as right there at the at the same at the same time. So how do you how does one get that gig? How, did you How does a good one get that gig? Well, you got to be a primitive hillbilly. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, uh, part of it is the same. We're talking about music here, and, and I enjoy it. But it wouldn't, if, if somebody were to ask me, say at the festival or something, uh, to get in a conversation with them, music's probably the last thing I want to talk about. And, and thank you for being prepared and having good questions, because... The, the men that I've known and played music with over the years, especially back in the beginning days of bluegrass music, when it was really coming into its prime in the 50s and 60s, they would all say, well, Monroe's so standoffish, or even a really nice guy like Lester Flatt, or, or Jimmy Martin, or Curly Ray Klein, or, or either one of the Standard Brothers, or Jim and Jesse. And that wasn't the truth. The truth was they they were working every day. They were traveling as hard as they could. Music was everything they did. And it, it would be like going up to a guy that was welding gas tanks on international trucks and saying, I'd like to talk to you some about your welding work. It's You know, you could talk to Bill about his dogs, his mules. Bill was a wonderful lover of horses, so much so that when he had a a horse pass away, a draft horse up at Bloomblossom, his his park. He he gathered the bluegrass boys together and other people would help. I was very honored to have a pick and shovel or a mattock. And they hand, hand dug the grave for that wonderful horse. And Bill was a tremendously, terribly strong man. He put on a, a harness and drug that horse to the grave because, and I get a little emotional about this, he didn't, he didn't want that horse to lose its dignity in death, getting carried to that grave in a, in a front loader or something. And so if you talk to Bill about things like that, I, I engage those people at that, on those topics because that was the way I was raised. And, and, and I think they took me in because they thought there was more to me than just strumming a mandolin. And I don't know if that's so, but I know it was so with those men and women. Hazel Dickens, another one like Alice Foster. I never forget uh, Alice. Now Alice Gerard. 
I gave a keynote speech at the International Bluegrass Music Association. The subject basically is which, we're, if you want to be a mainstream music, you're going to have to appeal to more than just old white men. And I never forget Alice coming up and saying, uh, "You're a long way from Honeaker now, boy." <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you told me at one time that you set out to collect a complete set of the Stanley Brothers albums, and I, as I recall, you said you were successful at that. How how large is their musical corpus? Well, the Stanley Brothers at the time that Carter died was the most recorded American act ever. Wow. And at that time they had out the uh they had 52 long play albums on vinyl. And there's some came out after Carter's death, but I did manage in the end to have them all and I haven't counted them, but I think there's maybe 65 or 66 and I'm willing them to the Bluegrass Music Museum when I die. <laughs> but I'm going to enjoy them for now. Uh, when I think of bluegrass and I think of the first generation, I think of the f- some of the folks we've talked about, uh, the Stanley brothers, Jim and Jesse McReynolds, um, the Osborne brothers, maybe a little younger, but kind of in there. And then at some point, probably in the 70s, things changed fairly radically. You had people like the David Grisman quintet based on uh, Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. The Hot Club of Paris, 1935, was their basis. Then you had groups like Sam Bush and the uh, New Grass Revival, especially in the later days with uh, Pat Flynn and John Cowan, uh, Bela Fleck. Uh, if you went to one of their shows, they could play reggae or pop or jazz. What's your take on, on that generational piece? That, that, that was a seismic shift in bluegrass, I think. Well, it, it was for two reasons. One is for the changes you just mentioned, and the other is for it came into a sort of a popularity at the same time and uh, made it to where more people could sort of make a living playing it. I kind of look at it from a little different perspective. I mean, I don't think you'd have a David Grisman or a, a Sam Bush if you didn't have Frank Wakefield. Mm-hmm. And Frank was I mean, he was one of the uh, Greenbrier Boys, for instance, the band that backed up Joan Baez, and uh, probably everyone's favorite greatest mandolin player. But you're correct in that, in that while it looked like those changes all took place suddenly, you have to remember that the, the real change kind of started with the, with the Osborne brothers, as you say. Because Sonny was very experimental. I mean, at one point he was trying to play a six-string banjo that just added a C-string with the thumb pick and things. And Bobby was probably the first person to sort of invent that notey style of mandolin playing. And they also changed the harmony lines to where uh, originally when they were playing with Jimmy Martin up in Detroit, they would uh, sing straight parts like Sonny would sing baritone, Mm -hmm. Bobby sing tenor, and Jimmy would sing lead. But as soon as they kind of got away with uh, people like, uh, well, Red Allen and Benny Birchfield and people like that, they changed the trio structure a lot to where Sonny was singing low tenor and the other singer would sing a baritone line or vice versa, but Bobby would sing the lead high above all of them. So then when people like Grisman came along, his first recorded work was really with Hazel and Alice. And he was, uh, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, but he was pretty much trying to play like Monroe. I don't think Grisman really found his his voice in mandolin work until he was 
playing things that, that weren't bluegrass. And, uh, and doing it with people who were pretty good bluegrass players like Tony Rice and Mark O'Connor. Uh, same thing with Sam. I, I never forget the first time I saw Newgrass Revival was a, a Carlton Haney Festival down in North Carolina, and Sam and the Newgrass Revival were playing every hot lick you could think of, and Sam came right off stage. It was I remember it was 1970, and he came up to me. I think we we're about the same age, and he said, "What do you think about the singing?" Because he knew that that you know. Like Joe Wilson once said, the picking attracts, but the singing holds. <laughs> oh, good point. Say, Ron, we're, we're running out of time, but we're not running out of topics. So my <laughs> suggestion is that uh, we're going to take a break here and, and uh, record some more, and we're, this will be a two-part show. So, uh, well, we've been speaking with uh, Ron Thomason, who is uh, head of Dry Branch Fire Squad, a group that's been around for at least 40 years. Also locally in the Valley, he is the guy responsible for the uh, High Mountain Hay Fever Bluegrass Festival. Ron, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week for part two of this interview. Well, thanks, Gary, and thanks for doing such a good job on the interview part. (laughs) This is easy work. We'll see you next time on Valley Views. You've been listening to Valley Views on KLZR 91.7 FM. Valley Views airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. and 4 p.m. and again on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Send your ideas and comments to comments at klzr.org. Valley Views is produced by the volunteers of KLZR 91.7 FM. I'm walking on a rainbow with my feet on solid ground. 